So to me, I think the Made with Japan happens when Japanese youth or our generations really focus on solving the problems in front of them. And as a result, I think there are a lot of solutions that we can find、uh, from Japan. And that's the moment when we can really be proud of being a Japanese and coming from Japan and learning from great lessons left from our earlier generations.、Mm. Welcome to another episode of Made with Japan. I'm your host, Ken Shibasawa. My past guests have all talked about the next generation. Well, it's only fair then to invite the next generation. My guest today is Tomo Kumahira. He turns 30 this year, which makes him a bona fide millennial. He was born and raised in Japan, but during his university days, he took a different route. Currently, he is the vice president. Of corporate finance and strategy at Komaza, which is a forestry company based in Kenya. This year, he was also elected as the Acumen Fellow for East Africa. Now, that probably makes him the only Japanese Acumen Fellow in East Africa, and probably the only Japanese in the world in that position. So, obviously, a very unique person, and I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So, Tomo, welcome to my show. Thank you very much, Rosalisa. I'm very nice to join the show. I first met you when you had joined Mitsubishi Corporation out of school, and you were working in the investment area of the、uh, company, correct? Yes, that is true. It was, it was kind of interesting because you also went to Brown University, which was、uh, in, a school where my younger sister teaches、uh, history. And so and apparently you, you were her student. Is that correct? Yes, it is too. Wow. So was she a scary professor? Very much. <laughs> Curious that because you basically grew up in Japan and then you went to a Japanese university. And then you decided to go to Brown all of a sudden. So, can you tell me how, how that happened? Yes.、Um, so, I was, again, as you said,、um, I was born and raised in Japan、uh, throughout my life before transferring to Brown.、Um, I had several exposure to outside world, so called,、uh, through、um, junior high school and high school as an exchange student. But those are two weeks or three weeks of MOBA, you know, studying outside Japan、uh, program instead of. Properly studying abroad.、Um, so, when I went to university, I realized I'm completely lacking experience living, studying, and potentially working outside the country. So, that was something that I was very keen to pursue. And I realized it's, it's better to do, do it sooner than later. And as many of us know,、um, Japanese university gives you a lot of free time.、Um, so, after playing around with my friends,、um, For a couple of months, I started to realize、uh, maybe it's another good use of time to thinking about studying abroad. And、uh, I did have other opportunities, such as exchange student program, but I soon realized it's actually making more sense for me to apply for transfer because that would give、uh, much broader opportunities after graduation.、Um, I was originally thinking of mo- more or less moving into outside、uh, Japan and working there for a few years before. Returning home. So, in that light,、uh, I thought it's probably a good idea to transfer instead of just、uh, studying abroad for one year or two.、Mm. So, when you were growing up in, in Japan, I, I guess Tokyo,、um, you, you always wanted to go work abroad or study abroad when you were growing up? Actually, I was one of the very conservative students、um, in Japan. Um, I was a, a student government、uh, president whole,、uh, from elementary school to high school. I was actually originally planning to become、uh, a diplomat or maybe MITI or somewhere that is involving a lot of active、um, policy、uh, development process.、Okay. Um, so I was originally thinking of actually going out abroad、uh, for work, but mostly staying in Japan. But it really changed、uh, when. Um, I think it was,、um, it was one of the moments when Japan started to attract more attention right before the、uh, 311 earthquake. I attended to a session by President Du first、uh, at Harvard University.、Mm-hmm. Uh, 
she was uh, she I think she was then the first uh, female president of the university and um, she had uh, a session in Tokyo talking about uh, liberal art education and that that really changed my horizons uh, because the the way she described her education was very very different from what I've heard before in Japan in Japan I was learning about education is always about you know, preparing yourself but also preparing yourself somehow not really in any concrete way well she said um, it is about uh, training yourself and it's a lifelong learning and it's the, it starts from liberal arts education so those are a very different um, ideas that I had about learning and studying in general and then I start to become more and more curious about, okay, how does it work? How does the education system work? How would that make my life different afterwards? That's, that's, that's really interesting, but, but your friends around you probably heard the same speech, right? What made you different from your friends? That is a, a very <laughs> interesting and tough question. Um, I have been uh, also a, a slightly different kid uh, from others uh, from my earlier time. So I, unlike other typical Japanese students who are more interested in studying or like doing bukatsu um, or club activities, I, I typically just hated acting in groups. Um, <laughs> I normally, I, I, I was actually- that's very, non, that's very non-Japanese. Uh, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> The most obvious example is that I quit a uh, uh, kendo club uh, after like three, four months. It's just uh, it's just too much peer pressuring and uh, norms. And I, I still admire the, the sport itself. But um, th these are the things that, that doesn't really resonate with me. Um, so I, 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 as much as I admire and love Japanese culture, it is also something that I couldn't really resonate myself with. So there is always a tension how can I be different? And also, how could I be still adding meaningful contribution to the community while staying not completely within the comfort zone uh, of Japanese communities or society? That's interesting. Why, why, why not just stay in the comfort zone? Were your parents, was it, was it your parents that sort of their, their way of living made you think be that way? Or did you have a role model that made you think that way? Actually, it's, it could be potentially opposite. So my parents were very understanding. Um, they themselves um, uh, went to uh, uh, was uh, were working outside Japan for some years. So they did understand there is the other side of the world. Um, so that's been very clear to me. And they even asked me if I I wanted to study in international school earlier uh, in my age. My response as a five uh, yeah five year old was, oh, come on, like, I'm a Japanese, I have to learn about Japanese before learning in English, which is a foreign language, uh, was my response. So uh, my parents did take that um, opinion and uh, respected me uh, to become uh, a, a real, like a Japanese, to be educated in Japan throughout the period. Um, so they were relatively supportive of me being raised as a Japanese, a typical Japanese student, but they also saw, I think, um, looking back, me struggle in that environment as well. So when I when I proposed the idea of studying abroad or transferring uh, out of Japanese university, um, they were like, okay, Tomo, finally. Okay. You That's enjoy it. that new life. When you decided to say to your friends, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave, uh, I think Keio University is where you went to school, um, very prestigious, you know, Japanese university, uh, you know, people you know go through years and years of study just to get into Keio so you, you made it to the one of the top universities in, in Japan and what was what was their reaction uh, when you said well I'm leaving all that and I'm going to the United States to study actually a lot of people around me really supported that idea so I received two very different types of feedbacks uh, from different course people so my close friends, uh, the teachers who really mentored me in, in high school and junior high, they really loved the idea of me trying out new things outside the comfort zone. So that was, there was very strong support uh, within. 
And at the same time, I also received that, like it's very typical kind of criticism or feedback. Uh, some of them were like, oh, like Tomo, if you go outside the, the circle, you can never come back to Japan again, or like you are exiled, uh, or uh, <laughs> how can you ever betray the university? Um, uh, all sorts of these feedback. But uh, after all, uh, what's interesting is uh, even after like three or five years later, those people who criticized me the most were the, the first ones to you know, share my articles on, on Facebook and oh, like this is amazing, Japan's education must change. So uh, that was an interesting lesson learned in my early time, not mm. to trust. <laughs> Your peers? Or? <laughs> no, not to, not to trust the easy criticism. Um, I see, right, right. Without fundamental understanding of the issues. So, so you spent a couple of years, I guess, at Kale. Then, then you went to Brown University, which is a you know, which is a very prestigious uh, liberal arts uh, college, I guess, in, in the United States. What was the most striking difference that you you felt when you moved to Brown? The biggest difference, or the biggest earliest shock I had, was in my. Um, entrance ceremony, basically, my day one, um, where deans and the professors are welcoming newcoming students. And there was a professor or probably dean who gave us the welcome speech and where he said, we are uh, all, we all started here uh, in this learning ground. We are still learners as much as you are. We just spent a little bit longer time learning but that doesn't make any difference. We are excited to learn from you, was part of the very beginning of the speech. And, and now I, I, it seems very normal, but back then it was a very shocking uh, moment because nobody ever in my life, no teacher ever in my life asked uh, to learn from students. So that was a big, I, I still remember that, like uh, it's a very, very, a big moment for me. Wow, that's very interesting. And what what about the uh, the your fellow students around you? Their their um, outlook on the future, their their stance towards study. Do you see a striking difference between Japanese university students and people that would go to Brown? The biggest difference, I think, um, between Japanese universities and American universities, is the expectation toward the students. And students know about that. Um, so in, in Japan, typically <clears throat> you either study really hard and getting very tough exams passed, uh, regardless of uh, it's being legal bar, law, lawyer's bar, or accountants or others. And that's pretty much it. Or you know, have some like extracurricular activities that are very extraordinary, and then you will make your career out of it. In the US, I think uh, there is a general expectation toward college students to do everything. So you must. GPA matters very, very much. So you have to take very good grades on one hand. On the other hand, extracurriculars are nothing less important. So you have to also excel. Um, and in, in, in Brown students uh, criteria, like excel means like you have to make your project into national newspapers, getting awards um, and doing something interesting instead of just something boring at the same time and make a lot of friends. Um, so I still remember there's a, a famous uh, picture that says uh, sleep, uh, study, and a friend uh, as a band diagram. And it says, pick two of the, two of the three. <laughs> um, so that was a very high, high, high intense pressure. Yeah. But that also makes the life a lot more interesting. I see. Which two did you choose? <laughs> it shifted quite a bit but sleep was always that one that uh, got the most damage i see i see <laughs> um not not because of partying but because you're studying right yeah partying is in included as part of the friends i see i see got it <laughs> that's right okay excellent um but you know you speak very very fluent english um but when you went to Brown, did you already study English before going abroad, or were you just kind of thrown in the pit with with other speaking English speaking students? It is it is the it is absolutely the latter. So English has been my favorite topic um, to learn as a high school student, and there were very good uh, teachers who taught me. But uh, my English was barely enough to survive 
I still remember writing my very first academic essay in English in life at Brown. I spent I, I spent a good week on three page essay, and then the the grade was D. Kind <laughs> 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 professor. Uh, Tomo, kindly consult your TA or come to my office. <laughs> <laughs> but um, how long did, did it take for you to feel comfortable in when you, in your command of English? Do you think uh, it is, it is a still a learning process for me? So I still actually take time to study English. But I think the first year was the hardest. Um, because it's really hard to catch up with classroom, uh, cl you know, class lectures. So I always carried my iPhone with me to record the class and listen to it for several times and, until I understand it full. In full, I had to prepare extra uh, for the classes all the time because otherwise I can never understand what the professor is talking about. And class discussions are also sure. hard. Sure. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I went to the United States first time in second grade in elementary school. And I got thrown into the pit with non, you know, just just in a public edu you know, school in, in, in New York. And we didn't have iPhones back then. <laughs> that was when I was in the second grade. So um, I think I must have lived off my imagination for the first two years. <laughs> Wow, that must, I, I, I really admire those younger students who actually are thrown in because I at least had basic background studying English in Japanese system. Uh, well, but you know, but I guess, I guess, you know, you, you learn to live <laughs> when you're thrown, you know, when you're thrown into that environment. So, yeah. Well, but see, so you, what, what did you study in, in at Brown? I was studying international relations, uh, which is, um, an interdisciplinary program, mm -hmm. uh, a program that combines international politics, potential uh, conventional political science, economics, policy, and others, um, and including history. So your uh, sister's Shukusa uh, Sensei's uh, course is actually a mandatory class mm. um, we all took. Wow. What, what, what did the students say behind her back? I won't No, she was, uh, she was the fierce the most interesting uh, professors uh, among these kind of mandatory classes. Uh, she was teaching American imperialism. Mm -hmm. And her, uh, yeah, she was very sharp in making comments and criticisms. Yeah, but it's really, really interesting. Interesting. I, I would never have, and this is again, another cultural shock, looking at uh, Japan or myself from outside world. I still remember, I think there was a class on, uh, World War II. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, I, I learned about the history and events, but I never really had a time to discuss uh, in the class with uh, American students, uh, British students, uh, German students, <laughs> uh, Italian students. So all of right. these were, and also Chinese students and other Asian students as well. All those students from all these participating countries in the in, in the in the tragic war or in one place to discuss about the war mm. uh, it's one of the uh, the memories I can I still cannot forget well wow, it's a very valuable experience well wow, that's, uh, that's excellent what, what what was your takeaway from that if you remember I didn't have a pro any profound lessons learned it's more like that how should I say a mixed mixed feeling of comfort that once you can accept yourself uh, to be there you can kind of stay in harmony with other people right because we could we could have another fist fight uh, in the classroom blaming each other but we didn't do that and that is a very um how should i how should i say it's more like a, a physical experience than intellectual exercise mm -hmm. uh, everyone was feeling awkward about uh, about the history but we did try to overcome that awkwardness to have some conversation. So it is about listening to others and how their experience was, uh, expressing condolences to each other to some extent, mm -hmm. while um, not becoming apologetic. Right, so the right. balance, the very delicate balance is something that is still kind of 
I can feel whenever I remember about the um, the, the lecture or classroom. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's 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 an excellent, like I said, that's an excellent experience. Well, um, so when you were at Brown, though, uh, you what was your projected career path after Brown? When you were when you're still studying, did you would you think you want to go back to Japan? Did you think you want to work, like you said, in you know diplomacy? So did you want to go into that kind of maybe a you know international institution like the World Bank or you know United Nations or something like that? Or what was what was your aspirations? Do you remember? Yeah, actually, that's the that's the biggest struggle I had uh, in my university career. So um, when I before I left Japan. Uh, I was participating in Teach for Japan program or Learning for All mm-hmm. program, which mm-hmm. is about featuring um, Japanese students from uh, underprivileged communities. And uh, <clears throat> the process um, really taught me the excitement and also importance of social entrepreneurship. And I was t- tutoring one student, uh, a fifth grader, who doesn't like studying at all. So his predecessor, uh, other other the, my predecessor, uh, who are also teachers couldn't really make him sit in front of the de- table or desk mm-hmm. um, or the classroom. I spent three months roughly to kind of really teach him and discuss with him how interesting the studying is. And he finally took the test and started to learn. And he, he actually graduated high school a few years later. Wow. But um, <clears throat> that experience really taught me um, hands-on, like how it is, how important, but also how challenging. And the biggest shock was um, around it is was that when I learned how we need to we we have about 1.2 million students like him in Japan who need such support. Mm-hmm. So that was when I okay okay I thought I was just doing a more of a philanthropy work. It indeed it is actually a scalable problem that could be a business or policy issue. Um, and how can I solve these problems in the future? Was my kind of career question. So it wasn't the answer. It was a question I need to answer before I graduate from university. Um, so uh, I learned that uh, there is a thing called business consulting and management consulting who help people figure out these tough questions. So I, I, was, uh, I was doing internship for a summer and, and in, in one of Japan's strategic advisory firm. And the firm also had a nonprofit arm and realizing well, social entrepreneurship as a topic is something I study. So. I next summer I spent my summer in Washington D.C. working for Ashoka, mm-hmm. uh, oh. who invented the world social entrepreneurship. Yep, and working extensively on the impact investment team. I see. Um, so that was that was my uh, introduction to impact investing. I see. And yet I felt like uh, it is really hard for me as a, a young graduate to add some significant value because impact investing is a very professionalized area. And I clearly lacked business experience to do that. So uh, I really rescoped myself many, many times uh, as an iterative process and realized that it's actually better for me to find an opportunity where uh, I can learn about business, I can learn about um, investing, uh, I can learn about introducing and building a new fund and, uh, and do something interesting. And Mitsubishi's, uh, the department I belong to was called Asset Management Business Development Team. Um, that was uh, a department that's been there for almost three decades, building new funds. So it was the uh, one building, uh, one of Japan's first uh, REIT, Real Estate Investment mm-hmm. Trust, mm-hmm. Um, or private equity buyout funds or infrastructure investment funds. So I saw there is a, a very niche opportunity there so it wasn't really a clear goal set. And then I applied for that job and I got the job. It's more like an iterative process while exploring how can I make my career work. And I happened to, I was lucky enough to uh, find the opportunity. Wow. This is, this is what, around 20, 2010, 2012, something like that? 2015. 2015. Okay. Okay. So it's, so, so it's way after Lehman shot. So I see. And, um, and Mitsubishi Corporation hired you into their particular division. That's that's that that's pretty unusual for Japanese corporations, isn't it? Or is it the norm these yes. days? So, so the way it worked is that, uh, of course, I, I was generally accepted as one of the one of the uh, one of the uh, 
new entrance in Shin Yu Shain into, yeah. into Mitsubishi as a whole group. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, uh, but in, in those meetings, early meetings in recruitment, I was, I was pretty blunt about, yes, I, I, I'm hoping to be in this and I'm expecting myself to be in this. And I'm a millennial, so I may decide to go elsewhere if this doesn't <laughs> You said that during the interview? Uh, only, only after I received the offer. <laughs> I see. But so, but you didn't, you didn't, you didn't consider staying in the United States or going to Europe or some other place after your days at Brown. Yeah, uh, it, it is. It is a very interesting opportunity for me to spend longer time outside Japan. So I was also actually applying for a separate position in the U.S., not in Europe. But my realization is that. If I were to do a social uh, impact work or mobile impact investing uh, in general, then it's really important for me to expose myself to a broad spectrum of work instead of broad regions, so uh, geographics of the work. And when it comes to uh, broad spectrum of work, uh, American professional firms normally have very narrow scope which is in a good, good way, right? That, that's how you train yourself as a professional in a very confined space. But uh, companies like, uh, Japanese companies like Mitsubishi sometimes offer a very broad coverage. So my departments were responsible for all the region outside Japan. Mm. <clears throat> so I, I was do, dealing with African project and I was doing uh, American project in Latin America was also scope and Southeast Asia so, and UK as well. So all of these uh, mixture of experience I can get uh, from regional basis and also coverage, like work scope coverage or something that is actually pretty unique compared to other opportunities. So instead of becoming an analyst in, in the firm as one of the kind of global professional, I realized it might be actually better for me to ground myself in Japan to look everything else. I see. That's a, that's a, that's a very interesting uh, career choice. So being at Mitsubishi Corporation actually gave you uh, more of a, uh, 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 <clears throat> wider wider view into the world uh, through through work, <clears throat> rather than being a, a specific specialist in, in, in one area. Is, is that the way you looked at it? Yes. Okay, okay, excellent. Well, so what was it like coming back to Japan? You had like four years of this sort of liberal freedom. <laughs> yeah. Right, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you were out there on your own, you were young and you were getting lots of, you know, good stimuli from your friends, your environment. And then you came back to Japan for one of the, uh, you know, prestigious, but, you know, one of the oldest companies in, in Japan. What was that like? That was a very different experience, I have to say. <laughs> Although I was expecting, I was expecting uh, the, the change to happen. So the, there are several things. Um, I did before entering into the company, or actually, indeed, when I, I think I, I accepted offer officially, I did a couple of things. I, at first, I, I told myself um, it is an anthropological exploration, not a life. What that means is that uh, you feel very isolated or alienated only because you feel like you believe somewhere in your mind that you belong to them. Mm -hmm. Then it feels really hard to that you you're not fit into that uh, norms and communities and you 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 cannot do as other people do and that will make your position worse and this is a very vicious cycle. Whereas uh, one of the things that I learned from my anthropo anthropology class uh, at Brown is that uh, you shouldn't assume that you're part of others when you're entering into completely new culture. Uh, so I'm basically taking example of like. A, an American scholar going to Aboriginal society, uh, <laughs> but I almost felt I almost like told myself that you know yes we are Japanese and we are all Japanese and we are having this shared experience to some extent, but uh, kind of learn like learn unlearn everything I've 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 known and learn from the scratch and really build like how the norm is constructed, how the behavior is defined, and how I can make it work. Um, so I almost felt like. Uh, this is not uh, about culture, not about identity. It's about just a pure analysis of norms and how I make sure I comply. So I, I make it made it a, a game to do that. So 
whenever mm-hmm. I see the difference, it, it it struck me more of a curious puzzle than uh, a shock. I see. Probably your your friends at Kale when you join, many of them probably join Mitsubishi Corporation. <clears throat> maybe they're like because they went straight through the university. They're maybe a couple of years senior to you in the organization. What was it like when you you know saw saw them again after four four years or something? Yeah, it is. Well, I actually continue like seeing people um from time to time whenever i had a chance to come back to japan mm-hmm. that was a um yeah there's a continued i see uh, friendships there um of course there are several people who i i meet less but i, I think in particular after the 311 um, earthquake japanese university students including myself really felt that there's a need for change educational reform and, and more activism and mm. along that line, a lot of uh, university students went outside Japan. So it could be exchange program or there are a lot of students who you know, visited me at Brown and other schools uh, during university time. So the interaction between Japanese universities and American uh, like, uh, universities abroad were pretty active. Um, so I didn't really see the kind of gapping friendship, the result. That's, that's, that's an interesting um, that the, uh, the 311 <clears throat> um, earthquake which is 2011. And do you feel there's sort of a conscious divide between students that were students prior to 2011 and during 2011 and after 2011? I only spent uh, one year. I joined the university uh, around 2010. Yeah. So I cannot talk a lot about the university students before. Mm-hmm. From, yeah, from what I'm seeing, I think there's a very clear how should I say, public recognition that the Japanese system is no longer functioning. Loud message our generation received as a college student. So, mm-hmm. uh, for example, studying abroad was one of the things that I uh, felt the change most acutely. Before, uh, before the earthquake, a lot of people, professors, uh, even professors, taught, uh, thought, um, I, my decision to go study abroad and quit KO was a suicide. <laughs> yeah. That was that was majority decision. That was that was a major opinion whenever I sample like you know random 20 people. Um and you know if you tell that to you know your other people who are working in Japanese companies, they're like, oh no, your parents must be so and not ashamed, but like yeah, it's like it's this <laughs> like, I feel sorry for your parents, right? <laughs> But but so 2011 kind of jarred or shocked the system um, and the the social conscience of of many young Japanese is the, is the message I got. I think you used the phrase that it it didn't work anymore in Japan. What was the phrase that you used earlier? So the Japanese systems, so-called uh-huh. Japanese systems, are no longer working. No so, longer working, right? So so my my experience of the a Japanese society is uh, I was born in 1991. My birthday was basically almost the pinnacle of uh, Japanese economy. Mm-hmm. And since it's a single decline, so that's yeah. our generation's experience. Right. And although we every day see terrible news, uh, economy, company, you know, politics, whatever that is, we're told that somehow, oh, Japan is a great com- country. We have great technologies. We're great people. So it's okay. Although like the, the whole uh, metrics are indicating the otherwise. So economy has never uh, recovered uh, since the depression in nineties. So we, we are living in the lost three decades now. Yeah. But we are somehow told that no, no, Japan is a great com- country. Uh, we have great people, people are diligent and hardworking and so forth. So like it's somehow a bit buttered up, but the three eleven was an event where everyone saw like the great tragedy and everyone saw people's resilience on the ground. But- not on the higher level in the society. I see. Uh, so that's when I think our generation really realized, oh, actually there is first, I think it's empowerment. We can do something because a lot of university students around me were actively participating in the recovery effort. Right, after, right, okay. After the disaster. So that was empowerment. And also uh, the, the bigger uh, realization that, okay, like, you know, looking at how the politics operate around it, how the companies respond to it. 
we all felt that, oh, okay, okay, these people probably cannot solve this problem. Mm. And that's a that's a question mark uh, instead of a, a solution. But um, it it it's the it's the big question mark I think our generation have to cope with. And now, as a as a responsible member of society, we have to contribute to. So I think that that sense is um, is fostered through that experience of past decade after the earthquake. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so that, that was that was 2011, and, and 10 years later, in 2021, you were a, a Cuman fellow uh, in East Africa. Um, so take us on your trip for the last 10 years. How did you get to East Africa from from where you were 10 years ago? Of course. Um, so long story short. Um, it was Mitsubishi uh, that connected the dot. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, as much as uh, Mitsubishi's experience is very unique and exotic um, after spending a few years at Brown, um, the team I, I worked with uh, were incredibly smart, diligent people with uh, top school MBAs um, because they are all almost like a self-trained capitalist in one way or another. So the, the questions or thesis that we're working on is always about what is the right next asset classes that are not explored by Japanese investors. So the the really it's not really about oh how can we make money easy. It's not about uh, how can we how can we become rich fast. Uh, it's more about what is the meaningful contribution to the society. So it had a bit of an impact investing angle in the mentality of Japanese large corporation. And one of the projects we worked on include forestry and agriculture. Uh, so globally. A lot of institutional investors has a little but not a small exposure to agriculture and forestry because uh, it is an interesting asset class. It's almost a real estate investment. And that's something that we studied uh, very carefully um, through some transactions. And when I look back uh, and trying to figure out how I can make my entry back to social sector, I ask a couple of questions to myself. So the first one is, um, how can I, um, what, are the, what are the meaningful sectors that can use business to solve social problems such as poverty? The second question was, how can I use my experience and make meaningful contribution? Just not being part of something, it's just giving a very strong push to the industry. Then uh, agriculture stood out um, as a very big topic because out of the 1 billion people who are living under the poverty line, uh, 60% of them are a single cohort called smallholder farmers, so small scale farmers. And I knew urban poverty is very hard to tackle because it's very policy driven, contextual to society, while smallholder poverty is pretty much triggered by several common factors such as lack of access uh, to seedlings or fertilizers or water and so forth. It's very typical capital intensive issues. So I realized this might be a topic where I can, I can make contribution as a capitalist to do. Um, so I started to look into companies, uh, oh, sorry, actually impact investing firms focused on agroforestry. And after speaking with several investors, I realized they're all complaining about one thing, which is, I love to invest more and impact investing can raise more money every year, but it's really hard to find a good investment. Our, our entrepreneurs are not bankable. So this is the uh, aha moment for me mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I was always thinking that investors need to do more. In fact, it's the opposite. A lot of MBA students now look for impact investing job in career. while not many look for a job in social enterprises. And social enterprises are typically run by enthusiastic, passionate leader, but not, the, not, not by experienced business professionals. So that was the gap um, I, I realized I can fill. So I immediately scoped my uh, search to uh, agri- agriculture, agroforestry, smallholder oriented organizations run on business basis. And that's, that must be in English. Um, there are not many options. Um, and Kumaza, the current company I work for, uh, stood out. And that's how I met the entrepreneur uh, who was about 10 years older than me, uh, 
same alumni from Brown. And uh, we, we since then um, worked really hand in hand. Uh, the company, uh, when I joined the company just raised a series A. Um, so it was a tr transition point from being an NGO to a social enterprise. And uh, we, we raised uh, together uh, roughly $30 million of series B, uh, which was one of the top five investment round across Africa last year. Excellent. Oh. What was your what was your pitch to to your uh, your boss at Komaza when you first approached him? How did you convince him that you you were the guy that he needed? Actually, it was less a, less of a dramatic presentation. It was more of a a trial date. So there there is such a thing called a fellowship. Um, I think in many African ventures and NGOs, it is more like a six month term, very uh, how should I say, uh, trial-based work. So the six-month contract I signed up for basically said, okay, like you support CEO, um, you probably do more numbers than other things, full period. Um, so, and my expectation was also like, yeah, like I've never worked in these environments, so maybe I, it works or it doesn't. I was mm -hmm. moving not to Nairobi, it's actually called a town called Khalifi, mm -hmm. which is... 50,000 people population, one supermarket in the middle of the town. <laughs> wow. Uh, like a few restaurants uh, in the town. So it's a very drastically different environment. So uh, I, I didn't really expect much uh, in that sense. I was more uh, curious to learn how it worked. But uh, I did prepare a presentation that summarizes my career and interests and basically told, told the entrepreneur, I said, hey, you know what? Like, we both don't know whether it's going to work or not. But I'm very keen to learn how, how I can add most value. And it really started flowing from there. But so, so you you were at Mitsubishi and you were investor, and so with your invest investor well acumen or you know knowledge about investing, you you searched the field for a potential company that was of interest to you, and you found Komaza. Is, is that the way it worked? I mean, you, you were, you're searching for the company you wanted to work as an invest from an investor perspective, and then you found a company in that field, particular field that you wanted to work for? Yes, indeed. So it is almost like a, a investor searching for new deals is how I approached to my career. Itself. I see. I see. So, so you had that knowledge of searching the field and and nailing down, okay, your 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 target basically. Okay, that's a very that's very interesting. So it was a it was a six months fellowship program, right? Yes. And which meant you had to leave Mitsubishi Corporation, or were you still working for Mitsubishi as a fellow? Oh, I I left uh, left Mitsubishi. Okay, we'll say okay. My so my question would be. Um, the same question that when you left KO for Brown University, um, KO, going from KO to Brown was sort of, you know, Brown is a well-respected uh, American university. When you told your colleagues at Mitsubishi Corporation that you're going to Africa to work at a forestry venture, what were their reaction? <laughs> I think, again, mixed uh, reactions. Um, but I, it's, it's a very similar pattern, I just realized. Um, it, it, it is uh, it is a lot of friends and colleagues who are working close to me congratulating me. So they they saw uh, I, I'm definitely not the typical Japanese shinyu shine. Um, <laughs> I was vocal. I was I was curious and and all of all of the things uh, you can expect. Um, so they they really uh, really they they congratulated me for finding the right place. And that was a, and also like a, a lot of cheers. So first, when I, when I when I start notifying that uh, to my colleagues uh, in Japan, it takes a few months to to leave the company. My my lunch and dinner schedule immediately filled up for the coming like oh, sixty or seventy days. <laughs> like yeah. that's that's how how people were curiously um, excited about curious and excited about, uh, about my next step. So that was that was very. Um, a great experience, a memorable experience. I, well, I cherish. That's, well, that's good. You have lots of good friends. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but some people did 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 think I was crazy. But uh, this uh -huh. is often the case. Yeah. So, um, can you um give give us a little bit more detail on Komaza? What what it does? Um, what what's its purpose? What's its mission? What is it trying to be going forward? 
Yeah, so a really quick introduction of Kamaza itself and a bit about future. So Kamaza is a social enterprise based in Kenya. Uh, our business model is about partnering with smallholder farmers um, to plant trees as a commercial activities. So we often call ourselves Airbnb or forestry. What that means is that forestry typically is about land ownership. So we buy the land first. Normally people buy the land first and then plant trees on the, on the land. Uh, the problem of it is that it's really hard to scale that model in Africa where land ownership is a very legally opaque, challenging areas, especially when you're attracting foreign investments. While smallholder farmers are already planting trees on their, on their, on their land for uh, you know, building their own houses or firewood and so forth. Um, so the activity is already there. So what we are doing is we are offering the right inputs seedlings, fertilizers, all of the things needed for them to build a really good uh, tree portfolio so that they can sell it off to Kamaza at the very end. And as a Kamaza, as a forestry company, we'll process these wood for higher buyer products. So very typical forestry model, but requiring no land ownership. So just like Airbnb doesn't require hotel buildings to be built for them, uh, we do not require a large scale plantation to be built. So. We, for example, we have been planting roughly 40 to 50% of Kenya's national new planting um, every year. So we, in, in terms of tree planting, uh, we, we are 50% share of the whole country. Really? Um, wow. So, that's, that's big. So that, exactly. So that's uh, that scalability. And we are basically pulling together a large scale operation, which is about planting 2 million seedlings over a three weeks period. So we are having like a McDonald-like standardized methodologies and systems behind to manage all of these things. And we sign up 6,000 farmers without signing a sheet of paper because we have all the small farm-based app to support those operations. So it's a combination of tech and operations. And, um, and that's what excites a lot of uh, investors as well. And that's where uh, our ambition is going to, which is, uh, we would like to build a company that is scalable beyond Kenya. Um, the, the whole uh, economic gap or market gap, supply demand deficit in Africa will surge to $30 billion by 2030. And one thing to remember is tree takes 10 years to grow. So mm -hmm. if the gap is 30 billion in 10 years, it means that we have to plant the gap today, right. or we have to rely on import from China or other parts of the world, which is a very long value chain, not effective, not reasonable. Um, so we are trying to really solve this uh, business gap in a business way. And we believe that the combination of technologies and operation that we have formed over uh, roughly 15 years uh, will be the right solution. So uh, we are in the growth phase. Uh, we are really aspiring to look outside the box and expand further. So to recap, so the the Africans they 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 tend to be they actually own the land, so they're they're they own small plots of land, and I guess they would have the choice of either you know planting other agricultural goods, products, uh, or forestry. What why would they choose to do forestry rather than I don't know wheat or some other commodity that you can get a harvest every year? I mean why why wait ten years? Yeah, great question. So farmers are actually more like in investors than entrepreneurs. Um, so a lot of uh, farmers uh, rely on their income or revenue or economic activities from uh, agriculture in general or livestock. And when they do, they they would not rely on one thing because uh, mm. so one crop, a single crop. So wheat, maize, uh, other crops are pretty common in this market. Uh, while farmers know that one draw can kill one, one crop completely. So if there's a drought, that will kill their maize. And if they're only doing maize, they're in trouble. So typically farmers do many, many different things. So they do some, um, some leaves here and some uh, maize here. They keep some uh, kettles uh, on the side. And uh, trees are known to be uh, one of the way to preserve um, capital uh, in the long run. So it's almost like a, a saving program. I see. So, oh, right. my kids were born. Uh, let me plant uh, 20 trees over there. When, when the when the kids are grown and go to school, 
we will get get them harvested and sell in the market and get some dollars to pay for the school. So that's that's how farmers would think. I see. So it's a, it's a risk diversification for their for their portfolio, basically. So exactly. Okay. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and so how many farmers do you have relationship with right now? So we have roughly 25,000 farmers enrolled in our uh, portfolio right now. Wow. In Africa, the informal sector tends to be the biggest sector. And so it's it's not, I guess, it might, when you mean informal, it's not regulated and there's no probably no contracts <laughs> and um, other stuff yeah. that people are in business are used to, I guess. How do you, how do you, uh, since it's a long-term, you know, investment for, for you, what I'm saying is, let's say after 10 years, the, the farmer says, Komaza, never heard of you. <laughs> so you've been, you know, you've been yeah. supporting, you've been, yeah. you've been, you've been supporting it all these years. And when, when it's come to harvest, they kind of go like, well, I, I've never heard of you guys. Uh, yes, <laughs> another fair question. Um, so the, the way we approach this community is, um, through working really closely with the communities. And it's easier to be said than done. Um, the way we do is several fold. So first, our field operation officers who, who are recruited locally will be the, the daily touch point with, between farmers and Kumaza. So Kumaza is a, 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 a company with large portfolio. So we cannot manage one area directly. The way we do is we hire local youth um, from the region. So typically, as, as long as they have English literacy, we, we take those um, uh, young people uh, on the ground um, to work with us. So they know what that mama on that shamba or farm is doing, uh, where his cousins is also Kumasa farmer. So in that sense, we have very strong local context so that we wouldn't miss these important signals. And, and them being living on site, walking around recruiting new farmers every day is also a good deterrent to do something wrong with the trees that we are planting. Uh, mm -hmm. So the presence is really a, a strong reminder uh, for those people. And further up, uh, we also work really closely with the local governments. Um, so local government officials will be consulted as part of the signing process. So uh, whenever we have new contracts signing, we typically involve local government officials as part of the witness, um, so to say, um, to the program so that farmers would know if they uh, screw with the the contracts, they may have uh, some repercussions. The company has been in existence for about 10, 10 years, you said? Yeah. So, so I see. So I was wondering how, 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 do, how does the company ca you know, generate cash flow to pay, pay salary? But I guess if you've been in, in investment or in, in existence for 10 years, you have uh, trees that are being harvested and that's where you get cash flow. Yeah. So I, Exactly. So we have a foreseeable cash flow, but we don't have the immediate cash flow. It's the problem with the uh, forestry sector in general. The approach we took was to use a hybrid structure. So that means is that our earliest 10 years were pretty much funded solely by donations because the organization started as, started as a more of a small local project. So we did start it as an NGO. I see. And uh, we only started becoming a company when we realized that the first the program is working, so we had uh, first harvest, um, seeing things actually moving and farmers keeping the trees for 10 years, then we, we start raising the capital from the commercial sector or the mm -hmm. impact investment sector uh, mm -hmm. as an enterprise. So we are still, still uh, burning cash in terms of JCOR, but uh, with a good confidence that things are still uh, in the right direction and, uh, and we will or foresee uh, assets accumulating over times, and we are now starting to prepare uh, harvesting all the trees in five, ten years. I see. Okay, so so you're sort of at this point juncture where where you're starting to generate lots of cash flow going forward. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, um, tell tell me about the uh, Acumen Fellow um, that you were chose for East Africa. Um, Acumen is a very respected, one of the most prominent and pioneers in impact investing, and social entrepreneurship um, in the emerging markets, uh, started by uh, Jacqueline Novogratz, um, I think around two thousand one, I believe. Um, yeah. How, how did you hook up hook up with Acumen, and how did you get chosen for for East Africa? Acumen fellow. 
Acumen Fellow uh, is a program, as you mentioned, uh, is, is hosted and planned and conducted by Acumen, which is one of the earliest impact investors. And Acumen East Africa Fellows are uh, fellows who are chosen from the area. So the person must be living and working in that area and uh, uh, who have been demonstrating tangible impact either as entrepreneur or as an organization builder. So this is where it is a bit more interesting than uh, typical recognitions uh, about like, entrepreneurship. The acumen's learning, I believe, from the past years is that as much as entrepreneurs matter, they also need strong supporters uh, who are called organization builders in, in, their, in, their, in their language, who will be making strong contribution to scale impact, building organization, building capacities and competencies that are lacking in, in early days of social entrepreneurship. Um, so they recognize both. Uh, so we are a combination of um, entrepreneurs and organizational builders. About 23 fellows are chosen for East Africa, um, varying from Uganda, um, Ethiopia, South Sudan, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, those East African countries. Um, they're tackling different topics from rural poverty, uh, women empowerment, Access to um, access to safe um, safety and other really fundamental social issues, and uh, I applied to the program actually twice. My first application was two years ago. I was just uh, I, I was I learned about it really bef uh, right before the application deadline. I really crammed together things. Uh, their application process is very long. They ask you to write, I don't know, I think it's probably five thousand or six thousand words in in total of application reflecting about your almost identity as a social entrepreneur and that process itself is very enlightening i guess you got better i guess you got better at writing english from compared to your brown days right <laughs> yeah i know no that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> what, that's, that's exactly my point so 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 you, you you have to like do all of these things and then um start to prove that you're not only a good good entrepreneur or impact professional but also you are good at reflecting and learning um, so the program is a, a lot structured a lot on leadership development, but it's not about learning leadership frameworks. It's actually about answering a lot of tough questions to each other, uh, asking, asking, asking the questions to each other and then answering those questions to deepening your understanding about yourself, how you can lead a team in very challenging environments. So that's the, that's the whole program is structured around and it lasts for, I think uh, it's a, about a year. With COVID, we're doing all online, but that that's that's how the program works. I see. Well, again, that's it's really it's really impressive and it's excellent that uh, that you were chosen um, for this fellow program. Um, congratulations! Thank you very much. Um, I'm wondering. This podcast is called, you know, Made with Japan, and in my uh, hopes or that for this coming decades that Japan can contribute to the world, but not just making something in Japan um, or making it, manufacturing something in this other person's country made by Japan, but engaging in Japan's, uh, not just technology, but people like yourself, the so human resources that Japan has to contribute, to co-create um, this sustainable, prosperous you know, world for 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 everybody, um, and that's sort of my in, in notion about made with Japan. And I'm wondering, you're you're right in the middle of this, basically, as I see it. And so, what 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 is your what is your perspectives about how Japan can come up with this made with Japan, I guess, model, for lack of a better word. This is uh, a very, again, very tough question. <laughs> I have to say, um, I, still, I still reflect um, on how my identity as a Japanese and my experience in Japan is shaping me uh, when challenge, uh, tackling challenging puzzles. The way I view it almost, it's kind of counterintuitive, but I, the lesson I learned over the past years working both in Japan and outside Japan is almost about forgetting Forgetting about Japan mm -hmm. helps you uh, more than thinking about Japan all the time. 
the way I view it is it's not that um, uh, Japan, the uh, experience of Japan in Japan or things we have in Japan are useless. It's almost the opposite. I, the more I think I see other young leaders who are making their own marks outside Japan frequently, uh, we have Zoom calls all the time. It seems like they are so Japanese in doing things while they never talk about it. So the way I think our generation is gonna play this is less about, oh, we have this great Japanese wisdom, so we will apply this here. Mm-hmm. It's almost, it feels like to me, it feels like you have a hammer on your hand and you're looking for nails. And I see that a lot in development language as well, where like we have, um, oh, like we Japan has a very good water filtration technology. Where are the issues? I think we should switch our thoughts towards more about what are the biggest issue in the society and how can we solve it? And maybe you find it in Japan. Maybe it, you find it in somewhere else. But as I think in the global, global, globalized world, I think we need to stop thinking about our identities when we're looking for problems and solving problems and inevitably you will find more from Japan because you are Japanese and that's how I think we can almost demonstrate what the made with Japan means because it's not made in Japan mm-hmm. uh, it's not made by Japan it's part of so with is a with is with means it's part of instead of any kind of belonging so to me I think the made with Japan happens when Japanese youth or our generations really focus on solving the problems in front of them. And as a result, I think there are a lot of solutions that we can find uh, from Japan. And that's the moment when we can really be proud of being a Japanese and coming from Japan and learning from great lessons left from our earlier generations. I hope that makes sense. No, that was, that was, a, that was an excellent, excellent point. Um, and I think that was the highlight of, of this podcast episode. I think that, that was a really an excellent point. Um, I, I really want to thank you. I had, you know, I have much, much more other questions I wanted to ask, but I, I don't want to keep you from your, from your uh, watching the trees grow because, you know, but it's really been a pleasure to, to speak with you. Um, I've known you for quite, you know, since you're, you know, since you joined Mitsubishi Corporation, but I've never really got to sort of drill down to you what, what, into what you're actually thinking and uh it's it's very very like i said impressive one last parting thought you know you're 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 turning 30 um i turned 60 (laughs) so so uh, i'm thinking you know when i'm turning 90 years old in 30 years and you're turning around 60 years old what what do you think you'll be doing then 60 year old um that's we're 90 years old by the way it happens it happens you're gonna yeah. turn you're gonna turn 60 one of these days <laughs> that's really unknown to our generations isn't it i think i, I think if if I, myself five years ago would have said oh i'll maybe i'll be doing some cool projects but i'm half retired i'm teaching students and university or something that could be a, a typical pathway I can imagine myself. But now at this point, I, I still feel that I really want to commit myself to solving the problems in front of me uh, throughout. And my big question mark again um, to to myself is that what would be the what would be the ways through which I can be useful? So I might be actually ended up asking the exact same question as I was asking when I was twenty two year old college kid. And I think my yeah, I'm hoping that I'll be open enough and curious enough to continue asking that question. Great. So you're going to be a curious, middle-aged entrepreneur, social entrepreneur. That, that sounds like an excellent uh, future for you. Um, so I'm looking really forward that I, I'll live 90 years old to see, see that day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we must take a photo. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Tom, I really, really um, enjoyed the conversation and, and, and best of luck in, in, in your work. I'm really expecting higher things from you coming um, in the coming years um, and, and looking forward to catching up you with again uh, in person um, if I ever get to Kenya or whether when you come back to Japan, okay? Thank you very much. I also look forward to catching up.
Great, thank you. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Tomo. As you can see, he's not your typical Japanese millennial. But I am sure there are other interesting millennials out there, and I'm looking forward to inviting them to this show. So, hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll catch you later. Until then, have a good evening or good day, wherever you are. Bye now.